want to pray for those guys and give thanks for God's work in their life. Lord, we thank you for Matt and Rach and we thank you for um, uh, working in them over, over many years. Thank you that they're still growing and, um, and uh, trusting you in humility to, to uh, guide them in their life. We thank you that you, you died for them, they're children of yours. Uh, and as we look at your word now, Lord, we pray that we would have open hearts and minds to hear what you have to say um, and uh, see what wonders you've done in the, in the history of, of uh, your church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, uh, hello if you're watching at home as well. As the video starts up, uh, I'd love you to have your Bible open in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, now is a perfect time to jump up and grab a Bible from the foyer over there. Don't be embarrassed by that. Um, that's absolutely fine. And maybe you've got it on your phone, something like that. Acts chapter 9, we're looking at Saul's conversion. It's got to be one of the greatest stories uh, of God's work in the Bible, surely. You're up there, certainly the most famous conversion. And also there's an outline too. So in your bulletin you received as you walked in, there's an outline you can follow along and um, that'll help to see where we're up to and how long we've got to go. How about that? Well, I've prayed. Um, oh, we're going to have a Q&A at the end as well, see how that goes. So if you've got a question you want to ask, um, then you're welcome to ask it or a comment, word of encouragement, something like that. What a time to be alive. Uh, <laughs> what a time to be alive. Now, I'm not talking about 2021. I'm not talking about 2021. I'm, I, although I think some people say that as a way of, um, with a bit of a hint of sarcasm, don't they? What a time to be alive. That type of thing. I'm talking about Israel and Palestine in the first century uh, AD. The word of God and through the apostolic witness was spreading, uh, people were responding to the good news, they were becoming Christians, the church was growing exponentially, neighbours, friends, family, workmates, they were being saved. The greatest news that the world would ever hear was being heard and people were responding in repentance and faith. What a time to be alive, I think. What a time to be alive. Now, the Acts, or the Book of Acts, which is the, um, the full name is the Acts of the Apostles, is a description of that time. It's the history of the early church. Uh, as the gospel went out from Jerusalem into Judea, uh, into Samaria, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, to the ends of the earth, maybe Ethiopia, that guy from last week, the ends of the earth, fulfilling Jesus' promise to the apostles way back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You see, uh, studying history is studying what happened. We don't read history and insist that the same things must happen to us. We read history, now whether that's Acts or Exodus or 1 Samuel or the causes of World War II, we don't read history prescriptively. That is that it prescribes actions, expecting such things must then happen to us. We don't read it like that. We don't read history that way. Uh, we read history uh, in universities and schools, whatever, we read it descriptively. It's, it's a description of what happened. Now, that doesn't mean we can't learn from reading history. That's, well, that's foolishness, isn't it? We, we learn from reading history. It's ignorance. In fact, learning from reading history is exactly what we're going to do for the next 20, 20 or so minutes. But just because God has acted in one way in the past, in history, 
does not mean he will act in the same way in the future. Now, he could, but we shouldn't expect it. And God doesn't promise that to happen either. So when we come to the conversion of Saul today, great story. This is going to help us immensely, I think. Because maybe you've said, well, I never had a Damascus Road experience. That didn't happen to me when I became a Christian. Am I still really a Christian? I didn't have flashes of lightning and the voice of Jesus come over the loudspeakers. I don't know. Didn't happen to me. Am I still a Christian? You see, understanding the descriptive nature of reading Acts, reading history, I think therefore is a comfort to us and gives us great assurance. Saul's conversion was unique. A lot of the events in Acts clearly were unique in history and for good reason. Not only the, there was the drama, there was the light, the voice of Jesus, but it was a historically, historically unique event. There was the resurrection appearance of Jesus. There was... There was the commissioning of an apostle, Paul. If the, if the gospel was to go out to the nations, out to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, hey, they need an apostle too, didn't they? So this is the commissioning of an apostle. So when it comes to the history of the, the church that we're part of today, this day we read about was a really important day. This was a big day. Friends, for us to be converted, it is not necessary for us to be struck by lightning or fall to the ground, or hear our name called out in Aramaic, any more than it's necessary to travel to precisely the same place outside Damascus. Reading Acts, the history of the early church, comforts us and encourages us, and if we read it properly, we won't have unhelpful expectations that may well rock our assurance. However, it's clear from the rest of the New Testament as we read that there are features that also appear in the account of Saul's conversion that are applicable to us today. We too must experience a personal encounter with Jesus. Uh, we too must surrender to him in repentance and faith. Now, Matt and Rachel both spoke about that. Repentance is saying sorry to God, realising our sinfulness and then turning away and going back to Jesus. That's what repentance is. And, I'm so, and Matt and Rach spoke about that. Uh, and and, and we didn't, I didn't give you a list of things to speak about, really. I just wanted to talk about Jesus, which you did, which is great. Um, but they talked about serving as well and responding to God's grace. And that's what Saul does. He responds to God's grace and serves the church. And we'll get into that in a moment as well. So I'd love you to have Acts 9 open in front of you. Uh, in short, what we're seeing today is just, it's really a before and after picture, isn't it? It's a before and after picture of God working in Saul's life. The, the causes of Saul's conversion, and then you can see in your outline following along, the consequences of Saul's conversion too. So first then, let's look at the cause of Saul's conversion. Let's read Acts 9, 1 and 2 again. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which is an interesting way of referring to Christianity, isn't it? We won't go into that too much right now, but it's interesting. Um, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So what caused Saul to start following Jesus? The only answer, really, the only possible answer is the grace of God. Uh, God's undeserved favour of you and I. 
and Saul. We don't see Saul decided for himself. We don't see that. We don't see Saul chose God. We don't see this story of I found God on some spiritual journey. No, no, Saul was persecuting Jesus. It's the exact opposite. His conversion was God's work, Jesus intervening in Saul's life. So what what I want to do now, I want to take a few moments to to show you the evidence of that. I want to show you the evidence of this sovereign grace of God at work in Saul's life. Firstly then, let's think about Saul's state of mind. We pick up a few clues, don't we? Especially in regards to the church. Saul was a bitter opponent of the church of God, of, of Jesus and his church. He was there, remember a few weeks back, a couple of weeks back, was it? He was there at Stephen's martyrdom, approving his death. We read, and we read you can flick back if you like, in 8 verse 3, that Saul was set on destroying the church. Destroying. Going house to house, dragging Christians away uh, to prison and, and to torture. His reputation was of, of hatred and hostility to the church. So back in uh, 9 verse 1, Luke makes it clear, now Luke wrote both Acts and the Gospel of Luke, they really go together, Uh, Luke's account of of Jesus' life and the history of the early church. So when Luke says in 9 verse 1 that this was still going on, even while, that's the meanwhile in verse 1, things were going so well in Samaria, at the same time, these things were still going on. Saul was on a rampage, hunting down Christians. Saul was a self-appointed interrogator with extradition orders to hunt down any, any Christians who had escaped the containment lines of Jerusalem uh, and throw them in prison. Luke uses language, and we won't get into the technical details here, but he actually uses language that that depict Saul as a wild wolf tracking down the scent of Christians, hunting them down and intent on destroying them. It is extraordinary. It is an amazing act of God's grace that this man was converted. And, And not only converted to being a sheep, one of Jesus' sheep, but converted also to be a shepherd of God's people. That incredible. If we had met him, say we'd met, you know, Saul on, on before he uh, left, uh, he left as he left Jerusalem, and we told him that before he reached Damascus he would become a believer. I wonder what his reaction would have been. What? You know, he probably would have probably would have thrown us in prison for being cheeky. I don't know. Uh, he would he would have ridiculed and scoffed at the idea. Wouldn't he? But that's exactly what happened. He he had, of course, left out of his calculations the sovereign grace of God. I wonder if you have a Saul in your life, a friend or a family member, that you've thought to yourself, they'll never become a Christian. There's no way. No way God would ever love them. There's no way that that she would ever start following Jesus. Well, Maybe, maybe you're a Saul. You know, you've thought to yourself, well, God could never forgive me. God could never save me. Well, friends, with all due respect, uh, you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong. And, and, the, and Saul's conversion proves it. If God can save Saul, God can save anyone. Even the hardest of hearts can be softened. 
Okay, there's another piece of evidence that this was indeed God's grace alone. The first, really, his pre-conversion state of mind. And that, that piece of evidence, it's just what happened. What happened? God intervened in this most spectacular way. So in verse 3, uh, verse 3 tells us that they were coming to the end of their journey. It's about a five-day walk from Jerusalem to Damascus. About noon, uh, actually Paul's recollections in chapter 22 tell us that, a light from heaven flashed around Saul, uh, brighter than the sun. Paul again, he's, I'm using the Paul-Saul thing interchangeably. He changes his name. Well, he's, he just starts getting called Paul, actually. Um, in chapter 26, he describes his conversion to King Agrippa. Uh, we'll read it in a moment where it's, where it's described this brighter than the sun uh, event going on. In fact, if we pause there for a moment... At this point, we're reminded of other significant occasions in God's salvation history of his people when God speaks through a bright light. Can you think of any of those? If they're thinking in your mind for a moment, what are those occasions when God speaks to his people through a bright light? Uh, Mount Sinai would be one of them, wouldn't it? The, the, the angel speaking to the, the two women at the tomb, the empty tomb, there's another one. That's bright light. Here's another one. See how this is so important in God's, God's history of his church. Well, the light ends up blinding him. He's knocked to the ground as if to the feet of his conqueror. Uh, Jesus calls him personally and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul answers. Now, he doesn't just recognize, I don't think he recognized Jesus at this point. Um, but calling him Lord, he's just Saul uh, admitting that he's dealing with someone godlike, uh, someone, uh, something godlike even. Well, Jesus answers, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Well, the, the, the penny drops. You know, Jesus was alive and, and his claims were true. And Jesus identifies himself with his followers, the church, whom Saul was persecuting. That is, to persecute them was to persecute him. Oh, no doubt Paul was a little scared. Was this payback then? Was this payback? As a kid, did you ever get your big brother to go around and beat up the guy who's been bullying you? Um, I didn't do that because I, I, my two big brothers are thin and scrawny. Um, I did. I handled it myself. Um, <laughs> well, that bully was Saul. That bully Saul, right? Now magnify that situation a thousand times and you get the idea of how Saul may well have been feeling when Jesus, the big brother, comes knocking at the door. You've been messing around with my people? That's Jesus. But this is not really an act of judgment. Although I think there are some aspects to judgment here. I think the blindness is part of that, but I thought there's more to the blindness, which we'll see in a moment as well. This is an act of grace. Well, Saul's told to go into the city, uh, Damascus, and await further instructions, which he does, and with the help of the men travelling with him, who are at this point, not surprisingly, speechless. Fair enough. So here's Saul, uh, who who had expected to arrive in Damascus, um, feared, chest out, full of pride and arrogance, self-confident opponent of Christ. Well, he's blind, he's humbled, he's been led like a led by the hand, like a child would. A captive of the very Christ he persecuted. 
What a turnaround. In fact, Saul, well, Paul later uses similar imagery to describe his conversion and the grace of God working in uh, Philippians 3. He talks of Christ taking hold of him, seizing him. In 1 Timothy 1, he speaks of God's love being poured out on him abundantly. Even in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul speaks of a light shining out of the darkness in his, light, in his life. It's actually at the end of C.S. Lewis's autobiography. So C.S. Lewis, that famous uh, UK uh, theologian, storyteller behind the, the Narnia series and so on. In his autobiography, he uses a whole range of metaphors to describe his conversion to Christ from atheism. It's a great book to read, it really is. And uh, he, he speaks of God's relentless pursuit of him. He likens God to a great fisherman, or I think he uses the word angler, uh, playing his fish, uh, or to a cat chasing a mouse. You know how cats, my cat was in the church just this morning, how about that? Um, but <laughs> as, as he does, but a, cat, a, a cat, cat will play with the mouse first and then go and bite the mouse. And, and or, or C.S. Lisa also uses this analogy of a pack of dogs chasing in on a fox. And right at the end of his autobiography, he speaks of um, God being a divine chess player, manoeuvring him into the most disadvantaged, it's disadvantageous positions, I think it is, uh, until in the end he conceded checkmate. Uh, truth is, Saul speaks of his conversion a little like this. Of course, there were sudden aspects to it. But mostly Saul describes his conversion as something that took place over time. It's quite surprising, isn't it? When you look at this, you'd think that wouldn't happen, but no, that's the way Paul describes it. Now let me show you why. Come with me uh, to Acts chapter uh, 26, Acts chapter 26, verse 12. So if you've got your Bible, I'd love you to have it open in front of you. Acts 26, verse 12. And so Paul is on trial here. Saul, Paul, on trial right at the end of, um, of this account of the early church. He's on trial before a guy called King Agrippa in Rome, uh, defending the gospel he is, he's, uh, and defending his work, and he shares his conversion story. It's, you can read more of it when you get home, uh, if you like. So in verse 12, uh, Paul writes, Saul, oh, Saul speaking at this point, On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was uh, on the road, so about noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What on earth does that mean? What is a goad? Well... Glad you asked. Let me explain. A goad is a is a, this is a great picture. I love this. It's, it's weird in so many ways, but I thought I'd bring it up anyway. A goad is a sharp stick, you can see it there, or something that a farmer would use to move animals and really, I guess, train them, but really to move them in a particular direction, to do what they want to do. Uh, it's hard to kick against the goads, as some animals might try to do. It's really a pointless exercise because the farmer always wins out. So Jesus here compares Saul to a lively, disobedient, pretty wild young bullock, bull. 
and himself to a farmer breaking him in with this, well, with goad, with this goad. So the implication is that Jesus was pursuing Saul, prodding and pricking him, which was hard, even futile for him to resist. God had been working in Saul's life, prodding and pricking him, maybe through Stephen's speech and martyrdom, maybe through when he saw Stephen's face as he died, or through other Christian witness, uh, Christians' witness as they also faced Saul awaiting their death. Maybe, maybe Saul's conscience, his nagging doubts, thinking about who this guy Jesus is. I often wonder, did, Paul meet, did Saul meet Jesus? He could have. Saul might have heard Jesus. I'm just going to leave that with you for a moment. Um, <laughs> maybe through those, Jesus prodding him and pricking him through those doubts. See, conversions, when we turn, and we, when we turn to Jesus and, and we put our trust in him, that's what a conversion is. It, sometimes they are sudden. But more often, they're not. They, they, God, they take place over time. And God uses his people to, to plant seeds, uh, a term that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 3, that eventually sprout and come alive. We never know then when God may use a conversation, an opportunity to show God's love, an act of service and kindness, whatever, uh, to bring someone to him. Saul's conversion was, was grace, the sovereign grace of God. But this grace is gradual, gentle, Gradually and without violence, Jesus pricked Saul's mind and conscience with his goads. And then he revealed himself to him by the light and the voice, not to overwhelm him, but in such a way to enable him to make a free response. The grace of God so frees us from the captivity of our pride, of our prejudice, of our self-centeredness, of our self-righteousness, those big words, so to enable us to repent and turn to Jesus and follow him and believe. All right, well, let's follow along the story then as we move from the causes of Saul's conversion to the consequences, and we're on point two of our outline. Uh, we're really looking at chapter 9, verses 10 to 25. So sort of have that in front of you and we'll jump back and forth into it. What do we notice? Well, what do we notice following on the, what do we notice with the after picture? We've, we've seen the before picture. We've seen the during picture. Now we'll look at the after picture. What do we notice? What are the consequences? Well, first, Saul had a new reverence for God. Look at verse 11, Acts 9, verse 11. Uh, the Lord told him, that's Ananias, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. By the way, you can still go to Straight Street today. Yeah, you can go to Straight Street in Damascus, and it's still called Straight Street, and it goes pretty much right up and down the center of Damascus. How about that? Um, so go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. He's praying. And in fact, in verse 9, we're told that Saul was fasting and praying. Ever wondered what he was praying for? I do. I wonder what he was praying for. Well, let's put a few things, let's make a few educated guesses. Right, we're not really told exactly, but from Paul's testimonies of sharing his story from Philippians 3 and Galatians 1, I think we can make some pretty solid guesses about what he was praying for. I think he was praying for his forgiveness of his sins. He certainly speaks of that as something we ought to, we ought to do. I think he was praying especially for his, saying sorry for his pride, his, his self-righteousness. Read Philippians 3, another bit of homework. Uh, 
I think he was asking for forgiveness for the cruel persecution of, of the church. And I reckon too he prayed for wisdom to know what God wanted him to do now. What happens next, Lord? I think he would have prayed for the power, for, for power to serve Jesus, to please him and know him more. I think that's what he would have been praying for. And of course, no doubt, he would have praised God for his work in his life, that God had mercy on him. So a new reverence for God, a second consequence. Saul had a new relationship to the church into which Ananias had now introduced him. This is my favourite part of the passage. I love it. Let me explain what happened. I reckon Ananias is a hero of the church. I reckon he's a legend. No two ways about it. But he doesn't really get the attention, does he, that other people get. But I reckon Ananias, you know, if, I, if it didn't sound sort of a weird sort of name, I reckon I name, would have named my children after him. Um, but Michelle might have had something, about, something to do with that. Uh, but he's a legend. I think he's great. Um, turning up on Saul's, well, Judas's doorstep in Damascus was brave, faithful follow-up. Follow-up means, um, it's a bit of a Christian cliche really, but it's what we do when someone becomes a Christian, we look after them. Right, that's sort of the follow-up. This was brave, faithful follow-up, following up someone who's become a Christian. See, in verse thirteen, have a look at verse thirteen. He admits his fear to Jesus. To Jesus, everyone had heard of this man and all the harm he had done to God's people in Jerusalem. And then in verse fourteen, um, Ananias knew why Saul had come. Ananias knew. Sounds like everyone sort of known. Saul was on his way, and they were scared. He knew. He knew why Saul had come on this journey and the authority he came with. I don't want to go and talk to him. But, verse 15, the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And remember Philip? Remember Philip last week? He heard the word of God and he responded. Well, same with Ananias. In obedience to God's word, Ananias went. He arrived at Judas's house, where Saul was, and he placed his hands on him. Ananias welcomed him. Not only was this a, a gesture of love to a blind man who could not see the smile of Ananias' face, but in feeling the pressure of his hands on his shoulders, Ananias showed love and compassion. And at the same time, did you notice what he called Saul, at the same time, Ananias addressed Saul and he said to him, Brother Saul, Brother Saul. Now I tell you what, could there be any more moving words in this passage than that? those words? Brother Saul. You know, these may well have been the first words that Saul heard from any Christian. And they were the words of a church welcoming him. Isn't that just extraordinary? Brother Saul. The arch enemy of the church welcomed as a brother in Christ, as a believer. Wow. Well, in verse 17, placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell off Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised. 
and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Well, the next thing we're told is that Saul spent several days with the church at Damascus. He now belonged to the very company of people whom he once sought to destroy. What a time to be alive. (laughs) And you think, wow, Saul being accepted was one thing, but the church accepting him, that's incredible. And if we keep reading uh, through to the end of the chapter, we see that Paul's experience later in Jerusalem is almost exactly, almost identical really to his experience in, in the church of Damascus. A hesitation at first, and fair enough from that church, yep. Acceptance then wel- and welcome, and then fearless gospel preaching, Christ, persecution followed that. And look at verse 31. Let's flip out of verse 31 for a moment. What do we notice there? Well, godliness and growth. Uh, See, friends, true conversion will always mean church membership. It'll always mean church membership. But it's not only that new Christians must join the Christian community, but the Christian community must welcome new Christians, especially those that are a little harder to welcome. I reckon Paul might have been a little harder to welcome, considering he'd been killing their friends and family members just about a few months ago. People, who are, people from different backgrounds, whether they're religious, social or ethnic, we've got to welcome them. I, I, I actually feel it's worth reinforcing as a way of an application here that for Christians to say that we only need to be concerned about our own church, denomination or country is to counter God's mission to reach the lost. Remember the lost like the people in Samaria, the lost like the Ethiopian and of course the lost like Saul the sores of Tarsus in our community. These last couple chapters in Acts speak firmly against any form of parochialism in the church. And looking at, as, at another angle, uh, there is an urgent need for more Ananiases, hmm, is that a word? Or Barnabases? That sounds funny, doesn't it? I'm sure that's not right. But I think you know what I mean. We need more people like Ananias and more people like Barnabas, don't we? And what are they, Who overcome their fears and their hesitations and take the initiative and befriend newcomers wherever they're from. If the church at, at uh, Damascus and Jerusalem can welcome Saul, then, hey, we can welcome anyone. Okay, finally then, as, as well as a new reverence for God, a new relationship with the church, Saul recognised that he had a new responsibility to the world, especially as a witness. So Jesus had appointed him as a servant and a witness to what he had seen and heard, uh, his chosen instrument to go to the Gentiles, and for many of us, that includes you and I. We're part of that story of God's salvation history. Let's notice a few quick things about Saul's witness from what we've read today. It was Christ-centred. He preached that Christ was the Son of God. He uh, proved in Damascus that Jesus was the Christ. Friends, to be a witness for Jesus, which if you're a Christian person we're called to do, is to speak of Jesus as the Christ, God's King who came to save us from from our sin, the Son of God. Don't share your conversion story without talking about Jesus. Don't bother. Talk about Jesus. He's the one who saved you. Saul's witness was also in the power of the Holy Spirit, verse 17, verse 22. That's the Spirit's task. The Spirit's number one task is to bear witness to Jesus. And next, Saul's witness was courageous and bold. And so his witness would be costly. 
As Jesus warned him through Ananias' word, words back in verse 16, what did he say? I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And if we read, keep reading through Acts, that's exactly what happens. Countless. Paul gets thrown into prison. He gets whipped and tortured. He gets on a shipwreck, for goodness sake. Uh, he, was, he was persecuted for the gospel. His life was threatened in Damascus almost immediately and then again in Jerusalem. Okay, let's tie a few things together. What we, we see this great, great turnaround. And that, of course, is what happens in any Christian's life, isn't it, when they, become, when they start following Jesus. The story of Saul's conversion in Acts 9 begins with him leaving Jerusalem with the official mandate from the high priest's to arrest fugitive Christians and ends with him leaving Jerusalem as a fugitive Christian himself. We've been looking at the cause and effects of Saul's conversion and our overall impression has to be the grace of God, turning this wolf into a sheep, a shepherd of God's people. Saul's story should encourage us to expect more from God in regards to both non-believers and new believers. As for non-believers, there are many Saul's of Tarsus's in our world today. And like Saul, they're naturally gifted in intellect and character. Men and women with energy, initiative and drive, with strong convictions, utterly sincere, but sincerely mistaken, hard and stubborn in their rejection of Jesus. But they're not beyond God's saving grace. They're not beyond God's love. I want to say this morning, you are not beyond God's saving grace. If you're already a believer, well, God calls us to pray for such people. God calls us to connect with such people. And God calls us to expect him to work. If you're around in... um, uh, if you were around churches in the Anglican Church in the Sydney Diocese back in 2009, we were down in Nara at that point. Um, I've completely forgot to press the buttons. I got so carried away. Anyway, that's what we've done. Anyway, there you go. Um, but uh, there was this mission catchphrase called Pray, Connect, Expect. Anyone around then remember that? A few people? I actually think it was pretty good. I liked it. Um, we had a Jesus Is mission uh, last, was it last year, the year before, um, which was, I think, good too. Pray, connect, expect. I I like that. I think it's a good little thing to remember. We pray for people to to know Jesus. We connect with them. See, the thing is, what we often do, I'm going to use the laser, we often forget this little bit. We do. We we, we forget to connect with them. God actually wants us to connect with them, to be Ananiases and Barnabases. Pray, connect, expect God to work. But we should never be satisfied with a person's conversion. That's just the beginning. God's grace not only brings new birth, but also transforms a new convert into a brother or sister. Brother Saul welcomes him into the church with a new reverence for God, a new relationship with the church, and a new relationship with the world. How about I pray? And then we'll see if there's any questions or comments, and we'll, um, uh, we'll, we'll finish our service after that. Yeah, let's pray. Father, today we, just, we thank you for your, for your grace and mercy. We thank you for your undeserved love for us, that as we read from Romans 5 before, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you for that, that that happened with Saul, and we're beneficiaries of that today as we read Saul's letters, we read your word, we, we, we read his apostleship and his words to us. 
But Lord, we, um, and we thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy in our lives. Lord, help us to respond. And we pray, Lord, that we'd be people that do pray, that do connect and that do expect you to work. In Jesus' name, amen.